the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Kelly Ned, do I do all that? I had no idea. <laughs> I must be pretty... Uh... <laughs> Pretty special. <laughs> yeah, staff at the office right now saying, yeah, you're special, all right. Come over here, we'll show you how special you are. <laughs> well, good afternoon to you. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Lifeline, 27th day of October, in case you uh, weren't keeping track. And we've got a pretty full agenda for you today. Um, an amicus brief has been filed in the case of the upcoming Supreme Court hearing regarding the Texas abortion law. We're going to get some insights as to what this means and uh, what the potential impact of this um, decision by the high court to hear the case. Um, oral arguments scheduled to begin November 1st. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, will join us with an update. Also later on in tonight's program, don't say I told you, but I told you. I warned you. I predicted from the very beginning that all of this hubbub related to gender dysphoria and the change in regulations on college, university, high school, school campuses related to who can use what room was eventually going to blow up. And now, sadly, it has. Brad Dacus is going to join us to talk a bit about a case here that pertains to what essentially is a young man who decided to take advantage of the new laws and is now being charged with two counts of rape. We'll get to the details coming up a bit later on. It's pretty remarkably disappointing and yet highly anticipated situation. We're just we're playing with fire. That's all we are. All right, let me um, get down to cases here. A moment ago, you heard, if you were paying close attention to your radio, about a special event coming up on uh, November the 6th. And it'll be a week from this Saturday. Very special event marking the 40th anniversary of Real Options. And uh, what a great way to uh, not only mark this anniversary, but... Um, to, uh, to help people better understand of the opportunities before the church in making a real difference on the front lines of abortion than to have a gathering featuring my next guest. Dear friend, frequent guest on the show, we're always pleased to have join us, Reverend Walter Hoy. Pastor, good to have you with us. Craig, it's great to be here. How are you? 
I'm doing well, thanks. And you know, uh, trying to trying to stay out of trouble, one foot ahead of the IRS, right? <laughs> or, or whatever it is they say. Well, pleased to have a little opportunity here to spend some time with you. And and before we dive too deep into what you'll be doing on Saturday, November the sixth, I first wanted to get your reaction, just kind of an update in the. Um, the months since we've last had a chance to speak here on the radio, we've seen a number of states pass pretty encouraging anti-abortion laws. Most recently, of course, the one getting the most attention right now being Texas, as I mentioned a moment ago, with uh, some hearings related to this case coming up beginning in November by the U.S. Supreme Court. Give me your sense. You fought on the front lines of this battle for many, many years now. Do you have a, a feeling at all, Reverend Hoy, that we're beginning to really make some headroom here, meaning that the, the, the sense of not only raising awareness, but changing hearts and minds and laws is re- really beginning to get some traction? Absolutely, Craig. I, I would agree with the reports that are coming out. I think the very fact that the Supreme Court is even entertaining this is huge. It, it's huge. And if you're on the abortion industry side of things, this is scary because they know that if the Supreme Court actually looks at the obvious in the physical evidence that the child is literally a human being inside the womb of a woman, we're going to be taking a look at the reversal of Roe v. Wade. Is this a two-pronged approach? And by that, I mean certainly the notion of wanting to change laws has been at the forefront of this battle for decades now, virtually going back to the the very beginning. Uh, but most certainly, the, the sort of two-step approach here is to change laws, but also to change hearts and minds as well. So it really becomes, I think, a mixture of the two. Give me your sense in terms of where we're at with the changing of hearts and minds on this topic. Do you think more and more Americans, particularly as we've seen some advancements in science and technology, such as sonograms, things of this nature, that helps to better understand when life actually happens. Do you think that we're beginning to see some advancements on that heart and mind front of this battle as well? Well, you're absolutely correct. And even beyond everything you just said, we're also beginning to see the results of abortion being legal and prominent throughout our country for so many years. And now the results are starting to come in. As a matter of fact, I don't want to get too deep into this, but I'm going to be talking about uh, the results of abortion being legal for years in America and the black community. And we're going to be literally talking about the number one crisis facing black America now. And it all has to do with the actual impact of all of these abortions and we're beginning to see the impact right now 48 years of abortion being legal in america and one has to imagine that it has not only waged a toll on individual lives certainly for every life that was lost well over what are the numbers now 60 million plus i think in the course of the last 50 years nearly 50 years Along with that, the impact on individual lives, the mothers, the fathers, 
the grandparents who never had a chance to be a grandparent, the aunts and uncles who never were aunts and uncles. But along with that, and again, we won't go too deep into this today, but along with that, we've seen very real impact, particularly amongst minority groups in the United States. And as you and I have dialogued on the radio many times down through the years, Reverend Hoy, that fact, the impact on American minority communities, is not one that should be lost on us, nor one that we should ignore. It's had a real toll, and sadly, it's also been very intentional, hasn't it been? Oh, there's absolutely no question about the devastating impact. Neither is there any question on what, on the intentionality of it. It, it. It's obvious. It's right there for everyone to see. And no matter what data you choose to use, whether you want to use pro-life data or the data that comes directly from the abortion industry itself, the impact of abortion on communities of color has been devastating. And, you know, listeners, they can engage, uh, you know, with the miracle of the Internet these days on a, a simple way to verify that statement by simply doing a simple Google search and look on the map where these abortion centers are located. Look where strategically outfits like Planned Parenthood place their clinics. Here's what you're going to find. In neighborhoods like, oh, I don't know, um, Woodside and Burlingame and in parts of Corte Madera, Hillsboro, in all of the more expensive and predominantly white neighborhoods, you'll never find a Planned Parenthood. But take a look at the minority neighborhoods ones that are densely populated by African-Americans or Latinos, and guess what inevitably you will find there? If not an abortion clinic by some other organization, certainly the presence of Planned Parenthood. Now, do you have to be blind, <laughs> Pastor Hoy, to not make the correlation between the geography of what Planned Parenthood does and the morality of what goes on in those rooms? I think you've got to be blind. I mean, let, let's be real. The abortion industry is a business, a multi-billion-dollar business, and so they're going to plant their businesses where their customers are. And the number one customer for the abortion industry is the community of color. So yes, you're going to find them in our neighborhood. There's no question about that. And if you go back to many of the writings, the talks, this is all very well documented. Uh, those given by Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. It's not just a business decision that leads them to place these centers in uniquely, predominantly minority populated sections of cities, but it's also because of deeper-rooted feelings related to these minority communities that Margaret Sanger, quite frankly, didn't um, didn't hide very well if she tried to hide at all. And I think when you begin to sort of combine the two between the, the economic motivations and the racist motivations, it's pretty clear what the agenda is about here, and it has very little to do with such matters as pro-choice, full opportunities for women to make an informed decision related to an unplanned pregnancy. Th those matters, while that might be what they will tell you, is not at all part of the real agenda. Oh, not at all. And a, a couple of years ago, just to make it clear, 
the black American employees for Planned Parenthood in their headquarters in New York just came straight out and said, yes, Marcus Sanger is a racist. And that Planned Parenthood, very founder, was as racist as can be. And so when we start taking a look at, oh my goodness, even the employees working for Planned Parenthood have come forward and publicly now in New York, they're looking at maybe they're going to rename the street. They're going to take it away from, you know, Margaret Sanger. They're looking at removing that original clinic there. They're doing a lot of things to try and hide the fact that Planned Parenthood and Margaret Sanger are indeed a racist organization. Well, you know, at the end of the day, they can try to uh, sanitize and, uh, you know, uh, use use a form of cancel culture to try to erase that reality. But the fact of the history of the organization, who Margaret Sanger was, the charge that she led very specifically against minority communities, her long-established positions on these matters, and quite frankly, as we said a moment ago, the geography of where this organization operates suggests that while they may attempt to try and sanitize their image, at the end of the day, it is what it is. And that's an organization that makes its living on blood. And sadly telling lies that cause women to make decisions that, if fully informed, they likely would never have made. Reverend Walter Hoy is with us today. By the way, he's going to be the keynote speaker at the upcoming 40th anniversary celebration of Real Options. Ignite Life 2020 is scheduled for Saturday, November the 6th, 5.30 p.m. You can attend virtually via the Internet or in person and enjoy a dinner as well at 1175 Hillsdale Boulevard in San Jose. And again, that'll be coming up on Saturday, November the 6th. More information available on the web at friendsofrealoptions.net. You can make your reservations for either the virtual event or attend in person if you prefer. Again, Saturday, November the 6th, 5.30 p.m. Details on the web at friendsofrealoptions.net. That's friendsofrealoptions.net. Or call area code 408-229-9800. 36. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Reverend Walter Hoy on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation. Reverend Walter Hoy is with us today. By the way, more information about his ministry online at issues the number four life dot org. That's issues for life dot org. You are undoubtedly, at least around the periphery perhaps, familiar with Pastor Hoy's story. It was back in 2009 or so that he ran afoul of what turned out to be a law that was not only highly unfair but also very unconstitutional, uh, the so-called Oakland bubble law that created this um, sort of fake perimeter around organizations like Planned Parenthood that essentially said this is a constitution-free zone. I mean, that was at the end of the day, the end result. And um, rather than kowtow or um, simply um, give in to uh, the the highly unconstitutional First Amendment-destroying approach by the city of Oakland and Alameda County, he stood strong and in doing so paid a price. Ultimately, Reverend Hoy, you spent, what, a little over a month in uh, county jail? Is that right? 
Absolutely. And we were literally facing four years in jail. And what happened was we literally had videotape evidence that the only witness against me, the executive director of the abortion clinic, lied. And the videotape evidence proved that she lied. And after that, uh, it became very clear that no matter what the truth was, I had to go to jail. And I did. Yeah, and, and in part, I'm sure that, that rather than being lenient, they were hoping to make a lesson out of you. And instead, you wound up uh, giving the greatest lesson when it comes to standing for one's convictions. I understand that ultimately, two higher courts eventually exonerated you, one overturning the criminal conviction, the other, as I mentioned a moment ago, ruling that the enforcement of the Oakland uh, bubble law was highly unconstitutional. One part of your story, though, I'm curious about, and listeners perhaps too, and uh, undoubtedly you'll get into some of this on Saturday, November the 6th, when you speak at the Ignite Life event. But I'm, I'm curious for you, spend a moment, if you would, Reverend Hoy, and kind of give us a glimpse into your journey into becoming pro-life. Certainly, and we've kind of a, uh, referred to this around the, the fringes in our conversation today, the the very vocal pro-life position is not one that's terribly common amongst the African Americans today. Maybe you can help us understand why is that and what led you down this path where today you're taking such a demonstrably strong stand for the unborn. Well, for me, it began with the birth of my firstborn son. He weighed in at 2.1 pounds. He was born a little less than six months, and he went all the way down to 1.6. Literally, one day, I was holding my son in the preview ward, in the hospital, literally in the palm of my hand, and he was 1.9. And at that point, at that point, God spoke to me, and he made it very clear to me that what I was holding in the palm of my hand was literally supposed to be on the inside of a woman. And once that was clear, once God made that clear to me, it became abundantly clear what abortion was and what abortion does. Wow. And it's amazing how you can have that kind of encounter with the fragility of life, with how precious this is, how fragile this is, that one suddenly can change their entire viewpoint. And and I, I guess to a certain degree, that's part of the agenda of Planned Parenthood. They don't want that full story told because I've got to believe at the end of the day, they recognize themselves that once the full story is told and, and people kind of break free from what has been, what did we say, 48 years with a brainwashing that the issue of abortion is just a matter of free choice. It's a constitutional thing. It's a woman's right to choose her body, her her decision, all of that, that once people really get a chance to understand the totality of what this is, what this does, what abortion is all about, and the multiple layers of victims, not just the babies, but so many other layers of, vic of victims, I've got to believe that Planned Parenthood fights hard against that sort of public release of the true story because they know once the word gets out, the gig is up. Oh, they do. They cannot afford to allow people to experience the reality 
of life inside the womb. And that's one of the things that I encourage pastors to do is to just take the politics out of the discussion. Let's just focus on exactly what God has said. And when you read the scriptures, it becomes abundantly clear, no matter whether you're in the Old Testament or you're in the New Testament, doesn't matter where or when, it's obvious, beyond obvious, that God is pro-life, that he is the author of life, and that abortion is a sin, a capital sin. I've mentioned to listeners that you're going to be the keynote speaker at the Ignite Life 2021 on behalf of Real Options coming up on Saturday, November the 6th. Uh, spend a quick moment, if you would, Reverend Hoyt. Tell us why you've chosen to speak at this event. Why do you believe what Real Options does is important and what folks can expect to hear from you? Well, I absolutely love Real Options and I- I'm Literally, literally, and I hope she's listening, in love with Valerie Hill. She's the leader. She runs Real Options. Her and her husband, Jerry, they're just awesome. And if I had to pick leaders, uh, pregnancy care center leaders throughout the country, and I know all of them, I would Valerie would probably be at the top of my list. Real Options, oh, my goodness, they, they get into not just the pro-life discussion, but they look at the sexual health of the woman. We're talking about breast exams, pap smears, pelvic exams, STD testing. We're looking at all the things that a woman would want to have available to her, and it's available to her at no cost. The pro-life community has come together, and they put pregnancy care centers at the top, and today pregnancy care centers represent the heart of the pro-life And uh, you're right. It's a pretty special organization that does remarkable things to not only help a woman deal with the critical decision she's facing once she finds herself in that unplanned pregnancy, but then it only begins there. The long-term support, prenatal care, exams, they've got a full-on medical clinic, multiple centers across the Bay Area, the emotional support, the spiritual support, the true friendship that is there uh, that really makes it a special organization and a special event. 40-year celebration coming up again Saturday, November the 6th, 5.30 p.m. You can attend virtually, online, or in person at 1175 Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose. There'll be a meal and uh, an opportunity to not only hear from Walter Hoy and sharing his testimony, but the CEO and founder, Valerie Hill, is going to be speaking as well. So it'll be a great opportunity to learn more about what God is doing in and through Real Options, and most importantly, how you can get involved in making a difference in the pro-life arena. Again, information available on the web to make your reservations for the virtual or in-person event Saturday, November the 6th, 5.30 p.m. online at friendsofrealoptions.net. That's friendsofrealoptions.net. And to gain more information about the work of Walter Hoy and the fantastic leadership that he provides to this movement of pro-life people and educating people literally across the country, you can get details on the web at his site, issuesforlife.org. That's issues, the number four, L-I-F-E, Org. Our thanks to Reverend Walter Hoy, keynote speaker at the upcoming event on behalf of Real Options, 
Ignite Life 2021, Saturday, November 6th, 5.30 p.m. on the web at friendsofrealoptions.net. There's Reverend Walter Hoy. 5.32 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, Reverend Walter Hoy delineated in our conversation a, a big part of this battle is about changing hearts and changing minds. But along with that is dealing with the legal issues, a legal quagmire that was created 48 years ago with the Supreme Court Roe versus Wade and Doe v. Bolton decisions that have gotten us into this mess that sadly has claimed more than 60 million lives. I mean, think of it, twice the size of the population of California wiped out in just a matter of a generation and a half. There is um, an attempt now to try to overturn the Texas heartbeat law. The United States Supreme Court has agreed to hear a challenge to that law. Oral arguments begin November the 1st to get us more information about what this means. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, joins us. Brian is also the host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. And he's the author of the newly released book, The Evil Twins, Roe and Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing. And Brian, is always a privilege to have you join us. I understand that there's been a amicus brief that has now been filed. Tell us a bit about that and um, how important, how critical is this decision by the Supreme Court to hear the Texas heartbeat law? Well, Craig, all of this has happened since you and I spoke last. Just a week ago, we were talking about what was coming. But then on Friday, just this last Friday, the 22nd, the court decided they had been hounded by the the Biden administration, they had to stop. It must stop what was going on in Texas. And by the way, it is still enforced. It's still in effect in Texas. The heartbeat law, this is panicking the poll boards. They demanded a hearing. And the Supreme Court on Friday said, okay, be careful what you ask for. We're going to hear it. And it is going to be heard this coming Monday, this is far ahead of the of the Dobbs versus Jackson's case, uh, which is uh, the Mississippi law at 15 weeks, and the Texas law, actually the heartbeat law, it's going to be approximately at six weeks that the doctors are expected to check for a heartbeat. Any competent doctor will find a heartbeat at six weeks. But there's one more element to this law, and this is why we filed this amicus brief. It's also unique in the history of abortion law. It is not a criminal act. It will be a civil violation, and it will allow an aggrieved party to take a civil case against the abortionist. Whereas in a criminal case, you're dependent on the prosecutors to sue that abortionist. And prosecutors, you watch cop shows or anything, they often decide if they're going to bargain or plea bargain or even bring the case. Prosecutorial discretion is always the case in criminal law, and it's a different standard of judgment. It's harder to win a, um, a situation where there's a criminal law because you need an amazing amount of evidence and uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, et cetera, et cetera. Criminal law allows an aggrieved individual to sue that abortion. So let's say a husband, let's say there's a family squabble and the wife says, well, I hate you and I'm going to kill your baby. 
if she does, it's clear it is the husband's baby. And that abortionist has committed an act that violates the rights of that father. That's just one example, but there's others. Grandparents' rights. Most abortions tend to be done on minors, and often that the parent of those minors aren't told, but that's their grandchild being killed. So they would have a status to sue. It's a stunning and a very, I think, creative way to enforce the laws because this is clearly, clearly a violation of, of that baby's rights, but it's also, it violates our society's esteem for one another and the duty we have towards the vulnerable. What's, I think, uh, remarkable about this piece of legislation and why it has so many organizations like Planned Parenthood, uh, <laughs> certainly uh, up in arms, and NARAL, and, and many others, and that's because of the civil relief that is provided within the legislation, whereas, Brian, you point out, heretofore, it was basically up to the decision by an attorney general or, in most cases, a local DA, whether or not to prosecute. In most cases, they simply chose not to. And that completely stripped anyone that has been harmed by this from any recourse. This really is a game changer and undoubtedly the reason why Planned Parenthood is so nervous. And I would suppose, too, while they might be happy the court has decided to begin hearing oral arguments on November the 1st um, in the Texas heartbeat law, um, be careful, as you say, Brian, what you wish for, because the outcome to this may ultimately not be what they're hoping for. That's right. You know, one of the arguments that is being presented in the pop media is, oh, no, anybody would be able to sue, and anybody now will, will, there'll be all sorts of nuisance lawsuits. And what's interesting is that, in fact, there are everyday nuisance lawsuits in the civil courts. They're avoiding a very simple premise of the civil court system standing. In other words, if you're going to sue the abortionist, not anybody can actually sue them successfully. You must have legal standing. You must be aggrieved. That's what's decided in every single civil court every day and the thousands. And by the way, if you're familiar with the law, nuisance lawsuits are very common. And it's the court that says, I'm sorry, you don't have. And so one of the things the pro boards have said, well, protesters will take down the, the, the license plate of Uber drivers, and, and that unsuspecting Uber driver will be sued by those nuisance pro-lifers in front of the clinic. Well, that, there's no standing there. In other words, that you have to be able to demonstrate at the lower court level that there was an offense against you and that you have standing to sue. And so the fact is, is that every citizen in every other aspect of the law does have the right to civil. You, you have the right to go to a civil court if your neighbor steals something from your garage. And it's determined at that time whether or not you have that standing. I do not. Even if I saw my neighbor steal from my other neighbor, I could be a witness perhaps, but I personally would not have standing because I was not the one violated. And so their argument that, oh, no, don't use the civil law, it's terrible. It'll make confusion, it'll bring problems. No, that'll be determined by the local trial judge. That's what they do. That's their job, 
to enforce the civil law. So it's a very exciting premise, and that was a big part of our amicus, explaining the origins of the civil right to sue. And the reason, by the way, you as a citizen have the right to sue is that your authority is what empowers the government to have authority in our world. Under the American system, all authority of government actually emanates from the individual and their rights and authority, and then it goes upward. And that's what the Tenth Amendment says, specifically. The Tenth Amendment says anything that the federal government wants to do, if it's not in this Constitution, sorry, it then falls to the states are to the people, because in our form of government, all government authority actually emanates from individual human lives. The value of the human life is where God has put rights, and that's how we established our system. This is really a critically important opportunity to uh, to hopefully really get this, at least this aspect of the law, settled once and for all. So as I say, uh, those that have forced the decision or, or a hearing, rather, um, of the Supreme Court on this matter, be careful what you hope for, because the outcome may not be what they want, and we're certainly going to pray that be the case. Continuing to follow this story closely every week on Life Matters. That's the program hosted by Brian Johnston right here on KFAX. You can catch him Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. where he unpacks issues like this and many others. Again, check out Life Matters 11 a.m. Saturdays on KFAX. Meanwhile, more information about this story and others, go to CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. And if you'd like to get a copy of The Evil Twins, Roe and Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing, written by Brian Johnston, available right now on Amazon.com. 546 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. This next story is a difficult one. It's a difficult one because all of the signs of danger were there from the very beginning. We talked about it on this program repeatedly when California was considering changing its law and specifically in addressing the quote-unquote gender dysphoria issue would eventually allow anyone to use the bathroom of any choice. And at the time, the clarion bell of warning was very clear that this eventually was going to backfire. And when it backfired, it would do so big time. Well, it's happened. Let's get a report now. Joining me is Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. And sadly, Brad, in this case, I think it was just a matter of time before uh, an enterprising uh, young student uh, figure out a way to use this poorly conceived change in the law for their own advantage. Yeah, it's most unfortunate what's happened, um, you know, because uh, this, uh, you know, this, this boy reportedly has, uh, on more than one occasion, once uh, has um, it, it attacked a male of the same age, 14, and then uh, and then this other case, he went into the girls' room wearing a skirt and it, and and attacked uh, dreadfully, dreadfully attacked a, an innocent girl, 
And um, so it's and the, the sad, even what's really sad about this also is uh, these were covered up by the school district, Craig. They, they were not disclosed. They were, it was hush-hush. And, that, and then when it became evident and known, um, all these, you know, liberal groups, you know, feminist groups, the ACLU, the NOW, um, all of them are silent about condemning uh, this horrific act. And it just, it just shows you how twisted this, uh, these movements are. They're really not for, for civil rights. They're for agendas, and they don't want to rock the boat for uh, this particular agenda that is for, for males with dysphoria being able to, alleged dysphoria, being able to go into girls' locker rooms and, and bathrooms and the like. Well, I guess at a level, I'm not altogether surprised that uh, many of these uh, organizations that have been kind of on the leading edge of this uh, between, uh, you know, uh, NARAL, ACLU, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, particularly in the, in the front of the Me Too movement, have suddenly and not altogether mysteriously gone silent on this particular question because it paints for them a, a very inconvenient truth of just how ill-conceived these so-called regulations are. And, and, and uh, you know, <laughs> I would imagine there's going to be some degree of culpability, would there not, given the fact that the district was aware that there was a previous case with the same individual and taking no action, um, now suddenly there's not one but two victims? You're right. And, and their lack of action is what is to blame, not, so, not for the first, but for the second, uh, definitely. And uh, this boy is now uh, being prosecuted, and, uh, and uh, you know, he, will, he will now face, face uh, the consequences. But uh, those consequences won't be anything compared to the, the horror and the trauma suffered by the other two. Uh, and the impact on the other two. Uh, but I think that also there is culpability for the school board. One of the school board members has already resigned uh, and uh, does not want to talk about it uh, as far as what, what she knew, when she knew it. Um, you know, the others are in denial that they uh, knew about this at all until it became, uh, you know, uh, known in the media. Uh, the superintendent, it's, it's interesting, he'll be very much uh, targeted to dis- discover what did he know, when did he know it, and what did he decide not to do, along with the principal. So there's definitely some culpability, as and there should needs to be some uh, consequences. You know, when when a, when a child does something wrong, uh, he's disciplined or she's disciplined because there's a need for there to be an understanding of consequences for for making bad decisions or being irresponsible. Uh, that standard doesn't go away, and should it, it should never go away to those in public service, particularly those serving our boys and girls in, in, in communities like public well, schools. Well, and, and, you know, that, and that, that, that's a very important point that you make because this should not just certainly be consequences for the young man that, that sadly, in a way here, is as much a, a, as a perpetrator as he is a victim. That instead of giving the child help, the pathway was made for him to <clears throat> essentially abuse the law in the process of abusing other individuals. But along with that, we've got to look at it, what it means for those that have looked the other way. In the case of the school board, uh, certainly, as you say, not in case one, but in case two, lack of action paved the way for the abuse to continue. And there needs to be some accountability, not only for the school board, but I think uh, districts and states across the union that 
at some point thought, oh, yeah, this is a good idea. What possible ill could come from it? And now we're sadly finding that all of the warnings that went unheeded a year or two ago are now coming to fruition. Exactly. And uh, we need to understand that we're going to see more and more of these kinds of incidents uh, as long as we have school board members and politicians who are so beholden to this radical new movement um, that they're willing to put on the altar innocent innocent children and others um, to further this movement. Um, it's what's it's really disheartening is when you look at the the feminist organizations, the fact that they are silent and they should be the most outspoken. Uh, boys going into girls' locker rooms, these feminist organizations are completely silent, and it is the, it's such a travesty of, of disrespect. Uh, and ill treatment for 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 uh, for females uh, that should not take place and not not in today's society. And yet these feminist organizations, um, once again, they're they're silent. There's there's no excuse for that. Yeah, well, it, it just proved how duplicitous all of this at the end of the day really is. Brad Dacus, constitutional lawyer, founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. More information available on the web at pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. All right, rapidly approaching 6 p.m. here on this Wednesday, October 27th edition of Lifeline. Why don't we do this? We'll pause for a bit, get you updated on some traffic, take a look at some headline news. Coming back around the corner, hour number two, the Thursday of Wednesday edition of Lifeline, or one of those days, <laughs> from KFAX. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.